From the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association, welcome to online version number 24 of Grapevine. Officially numbered volume 40, number 36, and recorded on the 4th of September 2020. In this week's news, more accidents amongst holidaymakers on the broads, romance on the roller coaster, and a Gorston restaurant has a famous face drop in. Hi, I'm Graham, your presenter, and joining me from home is this week's newsreader, Margaret. Plus, once again, the other Margaret, with Judith and, of course, Dusty. As usual, the news is up front, and so we welcome Margaret to the mic with the first badge. Hello, everybody. I'm Margaret, and I'm your reader for this week. Dusty, Margaret and Julie will be joining me and giving their reflections on life, past and present. And I shall be meandering through the Mercury, bringing you items from June 1961. So, if you're sitting comfortably, this is the first part of the news. We have to stand on our own feet. Restaurants reveal new incentives as Eat Out to Help Out ends. Great Yarmouth restaurants have hailed the impact of the government's Eat Out to Help Out scheme, with some bringing in new offers to maintain momentum. The scheme, which offered 50% off bills or £10 per person from Monday to Wednesday, ran throughout August. Eateries across the town said it had delivered a huge lift and given consumers the confidence to venture out. At the Yankee Traveller in King Street, Oliver Huron said he was keen to carry on giving customers an extra reason to visit, with a new offer coming in this month. Although the diner couldn't carry on giving the government discount, it was offering a free children's meal with every paying adult from Monday to Thursday from 4pm to 6pm. Mr Huron said of the scheme, it was a great help. It felt like it put life back into restaurants, and not just for those days, for the whole week. September is not going to be as busy, but we can only have so much help. Now we have to stand on our own two feet. Paul James at the New Concept Inns, which has four watering holes across East Norfolk and the Broads, said his venues had been running at full capacity during the scheme with the new inn at Tourist Honeypot Horning being particularly busy. Having taken over during lockdown and rushed in new systems, staff there had been working flat out and needed a break, he said, as the scheme came to an end. At the company's other establishments, the Ship Inn at Caister, the Jolly Farmers at Ormsby and the King's Head in Acle, the decision had been taken to carry on with the offer at the chain's own expense. Because the pubs had been operating at a limited capacity and not for the whole of August, Mr James wanted to give people the chance to sample the new menu at the discounted price, 
as the company worked to build a brand that would appeal to year-round locals. On the one hand, we're trying to build a brand for food at these sites, and we're scared that we will lose the impetus we've generated as the kids go back to school and the holidays end. We really want to focus on the locals, he added. Jonathan Newman, Great Yarmouth Town Centre Manager, said the lure of a cheap lunch had boosted footfall in the town centre. It was something we all needed to get us confident about sitting down and eating again, he said. The concern is what will happen next. Will people continue to eat out and use premises that have brought in extra staff? Or will there be a bit of a downturn? It was something unique and something that will probably never happen again. College picked to deliver engineering scholarships to help boost coronavirus recovery. A coastal college has been selected to deliver new scholarships to help the engineering construction industry recover from the coronavirus crisis. East Coast College has secured ECITB scholarships to be delivered at its low-stocked campus providing an exciting new opportunity for aspiring engineers of the future. As the only provider in East Anglia, the college will be offering scholarships in welding, pipe fitting and mechanical insulation as part of a new two-year programme for 16 to 18-year-old students. The scheme has been developed to help bring new talent into the engineering construction industry while employers rebound from the economic impact of the COVID-19 crisis. It gives employers the opportunity to, re to recruit a young person who has had the re requisite training to be either fast-tracked into an advanced stage of an apprenticeship or be recruited as a direct site hire. To support learners on this full-time programme, the Engineering Construction Industry Training Board, ECITB, will pay an allowance of £140 a week during term time. The programme will also support enhanced work experience to ensure that all students become work ready. Alan Wagner, East Coast College's Engineering Curriculum Manager said, This regional opportunity highlights that ECITB are responding to the future skills demand and East Coast College is proud to be supporting such a great initiative. Chris Claydon, ECITB Chief Executive said, We recognised many employers face a hugely challenging time at present. The scholarship will support industry in the short term by underwriting the risk to employers of taking on new entrants and in the long term by launching the next generation into engineering careers. We know the engineering construction industry will face critical skills shortages over the coming years, and we have used our labour market intelligence to offer specific disciplines according to forecast regional demand. By taking this approach, the scheme will help ensure there are young people trained and qualified with in-demand skills to provide a pipeline of new talent for industry when the economy rebounds.
The scholarship programme is open to current students and new college applicants. And here's another nice story to warm the cockles of your heart, just to say that romance is not dead. <laughs> and the headline is, my legs were shaking. Man proposes to girlfriend at Pleasure Beach in Great Yarmouth. The couple's shouts and screams as they rode a seafront roller coaster were quickly succeeded by shrieks of joy when the man proposed to his girlfriend at a famous Great Yarmouth theme park. Daniel Sanders and Abby Bull, both aged 29 and from Milton Keynes, had visited the town many times before and have always enjoyed the rides at the Pleasure Beach. But on Saturday, August the 29th, Mr Sanders had planned something a little different. He had contacted the park's owners in July to organise a proposal and then told his partner they had won a mystery Facebook competition for a private ride on the roller coaster. And as they arrived at the ride, Miss Bull was oblivious to what was about to unfold. Mr Sanders said, I was so nervous. My legs were shaking and my heart was pounding. The couple were giving their prizes and then loaded into the carriage by staff. They screamed and shouted as they plummeted down the slope and as they pulled into the station, their favourite song, Beauty and the Beast, from the Disney film of the same name, started to play over the park's speakers. Miss Bull said, I was really shocked. When I heard the music playing, I thought, well, that's nice, that's our song. And Daniel got out and started waffling on. <laughs> I knew he was going to propose. <laughs> the couple are spending the bank holiday weekend in Great Yarmouth. Mr Sanders said, we love it here. We'd love to move here eventually. It's such a laid back and relaxing place to be. They went to the same secondary school and have known each other since they were 12 years old. Miss Bull said, when we left school, we lost touch a bit, but we were still friends on Facebook. We got back in touch about two years ago and it just went from there. The Disney song is a reference to their nicknames. The Beauty and the Beast, they are our pet names for each other. They're on our phones as well. And it's my favourite Disney film, Ms Bull said. Staff at the Pleasure Beach said, congratulations, Daniel and Abby. We're so happy we could share your special day with you. Everyone from the Great Yarmouth Pleasure Beach wishes you all the very best in your marriage. And the couple returned to Milton Keynes on Monday the 31st. And no doubt she had a lovely sparkling engagement ring to show off. Well, good luck and many congratulations to both of you. And that's another part of Yarmouth going. Next item. Academy demolishes a 114-year-old school building. Some 114 years of history in Great Yarmouth have been vanishing as an old school faces demolition, prompting former pupils to share their memories. Two buildings, part of the original Edward Wurlidge School, built in 1906 off Litchfield Road in Southtown, have recently been sold by the neighbouring East Coast College, which had taken over the site in the latter part of the last century. Tom Bright, projects manager at the college, 
said the properties were surplus to the college's requirements, with one sold to a local building company, Hammonds, and the other to the adjoining Edward Wurlidge Ormiston Academy. A spokesperson for the Academy said, Earlier this year, we acquired a redundant and derelict single-storey building adjacent to the school's site. We then gained appropriate authority to remove it, so we can create additional outdoor learning space and playing space for our pupils' benefit. We anticipate the new outdoor space will be ready to use in time for September 2021. The area will now be levelled before topsoil and grass seed is laid, with fencing erected around the perimeter. The second building, once the senior school, contains a first World War Memorial made of polished oak and marble panels, listing the names of local people who served and died. Mr Bright said part of the sale contract included a clause requiring the memorial to be maintained in its current state during any redevelopment. The College appreciates the importance of this memorial and will continue to liaise with Hammonds to ensure it's preserved for future generations. Road closed for three weeks for scheduled maintenance works. Road closures will come into force for three weeks in Bradwell as Norfolk County Council carries out £80,000 worth of maintenance work. The work will begin on or shortly after Monday, September the 14th, to carry out essential drainage maintenance works on Long Lane in Bradwell. It is expected to take up to three weeks, subject to weather conditions, and will involve the connection of new gullies to the existing drainage system running underneath the road. Gully pots between the junctions of Beckles Road and Selwyn Road will be replaced, as well as those on Chestnut Avenue near its junction with Crab Lane. And the cost of the works is approximately £80,000. A county council spokesman said, The road will be closed between the junctions of Beckles Road and Selwyn Road, as trenches need to be dug in the road to connect the new gullies to the existing system. Access to properties will be maintained and a diversion route will be signed. River rescue after person fell from boat. A person was rescued from the River Bure after falling from a boat in the early hours of Wednesday, September the 2nd. Emergency service went to the River Bure next to Tarworks Road in Great Yarmouth just before 2am. Firefighters from Great Yarmouth rescued a person who had fallen from the boat. A Great Yarmouth and Gorston lifeboat crew also launched to go to the scene at the request of the fire service. But a spokesman for HM Coast Guard said the fire service had successfully rescued the person before their arrival. A spokesman for Norfolk Fire and Rescue Service said firefighters had managed to lift the person out of the water and had spent about 15 minutes at the scene. East of England Ambulance Service confirmed it had sent an ambulance and rapid response vehicle, but no one required transporting to hospital. Rooms for sale as £44,950 on Quayside Hotel looks to reopen. 
a landmark hotel is looking to reopen with a rebrand and a raft of new investors. The Star Hotel on Great Yarmouth's Hall Quay had benefited from a six-figure refurbishment, upgrading half its rooms and some public areas. But with the easing of lockdown, it has remained shut, sparking speculation about its future. A booking agency that handles its reservations said staff had been told it would reopen at the beginning of October. Meanwhile, the hotel's rooms are being advertised as investment opportunities, with prices starting at £44,950. Property investment company Opulent is selling individual guest rooms on a 149-year lease. It says the funds raised from selling the rooms will be used to refurbish the remaining 22 rooms and other areas of the hotel. To promote the sale, the website says, the refurbishment by the previous owners was done to a very high standard and has covered a large part of the hotel. Not only were 19 of the bedrooms refurbished, but also the restaurant and grand floor bar, which cost nearly half a million pounds. This investment into the business has paid dividends already, with the restaurant and bar being a popular haunt for both locals and tourists to dine and drink in Great Yarmouth. Another firm advertising the sale, Property and Invest, states the hotel is being purchased by Meridian, who plan to add this hotel to their portfolio of three hotels they currently own and sold in a similar way to this one. Meridian have decided to sell their individual hotel rooms to raise the capital required to fund a further refurbishment of the hotel, as well as expand their portfolio of hotels in the future. The hotel shut suddenly in December 2016, leaving many festive diners in the lurch. It was bought by father and son team Howard and Paul Bossick. The pair set about a major refurbishment, which was widely hailed as a boost to the town, but have since sold it. Sarah Howarth, Group Finance Manager for its new owners, said last month, We hope to reopen in the next few months. We're trying to determine what is best to sustain the hotel for the future. We're hoping to rebrand before opening. Thanks, Margaret. Well, autumn is upon us and we welcome Judith, who's in the mood for harvest time. Hello, everyone. It's Julie here again. Um, it's harvest time, believe it or not. I don't know where this year is gone, but here we are, catapulted into harvest. And this is a, a poem that I wrote some time ago now about um, a harvest moon. My goodness, what is that? My room's full of light. In theory, it shouldn't be. Tis still dead of night. I open the curtains and there I espy a huge silver moon hanging up in the sky. This is Mother Nature at her very best, but no human or creature will get any rest. We all think it's daytime, so we are wide awake. No difference now from when day will break. As I sit and enjoy the spectacle there, 
watching the hooting owls swoop through the air, expose their prey, do not stand any chance to hide from the predators as they advance. Beauty, however, it also portrays as leaves and flowers pick up the rays of light sparkling on each droplet of dew, a real fairy tale land for me and for you. My grandfather told me when I was a child, you may think this crazy thought really wild. There'll be a man up there one day, you'll see. Although hopefully by then in heaven I'll be. As I sat on his knee, gazing up at the sky, I recall thinking how clever, but didn't know why anyone would want to go way up there when they could all enjoy it like us too, watching from here. We all are so lucky to live in this land where nature and mankind work hand in hand. Sadly, sometimes though, we do not connect. Let's learn from mistakes and help make it perfect. Okay, um, carrying on the harvest theme, this is a poem which I'm sure many of you know by John Betjeman. Um, it's called Diary of a Church Mouse. Here, among long discarded cassocks, damp stools and half-split open hassocks, here where the vicar never looks, I nibble through old service books. Lean and alone, I spend my days behind this Church of England bays. I share my dark, forgotten room with two oil lamps and half a broom. The cleaner never bothers me, so here I eat my frugal tea. My bread is sawdust mixed with straw, my jam is polish from the floor. Christmas and Easter may be feasts for congregations and for priests, and so many and so may Whitson all the same. They do not fill my meagre frame. For me, the only feast at all is autumn's harvest festival. When I can satisfy my want with ears of corn around the font, I climb the eagle's brazen head to burrow through a loaf of bread. I scramble up the pulpit stair and gnaw the marrows hanging there. It is enjoyable to taste these items ere they go to waste. But how annoying when one finds the other mice with pagan minds. Come into church, my food to share who have no proper business there. Two field mice, who have no desire to be baptised, invade the choir. A large and most unfriendly rat comes in to see what we are at. He says he thinks there is no God, and yet he comes. It's rather odd. This year he stole a sheaf of wheat. It screened our special preacher's seat, and prosperous mice from fields away coming to hear the organ play, and under cover of its notes, each through the altar's sheaf of oats. A low church mouse who thinks that I am too pathistical and high, yet somehow doesn't think it wrong to munch through harvest even song, while I, who starve the whole year through, must share my foes with rodents too. Expect at this time of year, not once inside the church appear. With the human world I know, such goings-on could not be so, for human beings only do what their religion tells them to. They read the Bible every day and always night and morning pray, 
And just like me, <clears throat> the good church mouse, worship each week in God's own house. But all the same, it's strange to me how very full the church can be with people I don't see at all, except at Harvest Festival. Thanks, Judith. More news shortly, but first, the other Margaret takes us on to the subject of trains. Well, hello again, everybody. Uh, more memories. Um, this time we're talking about the railway, memories of the railway. So, when we were growing up in Goulston, just off what was then the main road to Lowestoft, although we couldn't actually see it from the end of our cul-de-sac, we were actually just a stone's throw away from the railway line. The sound of the trains was what we lived with. And in those early years, just after World War II, the dear old steam trains made plenty of sound. So where to start? Well, um, all we knew to begin with was that one way the trains went to Yarmouth and the other way they went to Lowestoft. And apart from dire warnings that it was all very dangerous, that was the sum total of what we needed to know. So, although in those early days we never bought tickets, because it was cheaper, I suppose, to go anywhere by bus, let's begin with the booking hall. To us, as little ones, it was a fascinating place. And of course it seemed much bigger than it really was. The way in and the way out were both wide open most of the time, and so your footsteps echoed loudly on the wooden floor. For a short while there was also a little fancy goods shop, almost a kiosk, which was equally fascinating, especially on pocket money days. However, outside the booking hall was a bridge, which you could walk across, and then there was a path which sloped gently upwards and eventually opened out onto the road above and it was a handy shortcut, and led straight to the seafront, or maybe you were going to the shops. On the main lower soft road, and not far from the booking hall, was a big wide entrance where cars and lorries could go down to the goods yard, the coal depot and the engine shed. I was told that the engine shed had a turntable where they could turn the engines around, but I, I must admit, but all of this was a little bit beyond me. However, down there it was strictly forbidden territory and very dangerous, and I don't recall anybody ever disobeying this rule. However, when things started to pick up after World War II, folk began to take holidays, often by rail. And although Galston was always quieter than Yarmouth, it nevertheless thronged with visitors as well as a couple of large hotels and a holiday camp, there were smaller ones, and scores of boarding houses and even private houses where the owners catered for bed and breakfast. And rail passengers, of course, meant luggage to be carried. So boys with barrows would gather near the booking hall and the wide entrance to the goods yard, ready to help visitors with suitcases to wherever they had booked in. And I believe that the boys, incidentally girls, were never involved in this, had a sort of mini-union with agreed prices for their services. And heaven help anybody who tried to corner the market by charging less than the agreed union rates. 
Just over the main road and opposite the booking hall was the aptly named Station Hotel. Now whether many folk actually stayed there I don't know, but during the war and for many years after it was certainly a thriving pub and a real focal point in the community at a time when every area had its local. The bar, men only, and the lounge were always full of people from the surrounding area. And just off the bar was a tiny room called the Snug, where one or two, mainly elderly ladies, my grandmother and her friend among them, would sneak in for a quiet Guinness or two. Sometimes, especially on a Saturday night, the young people would come in from what were then remote villages and stop off at the station hotel before continuing their bus journeys to the bright lights of Yarmouth. In later years, I was reliably informed by somebody who was probably the last landlady at the, that that place was actually haunted. She'd seen the ghost and it described said ghost to my mother who had worked there and was sure she knew who it was. But to return to the actual railway line itself, there was one activity which as kids we all enjoyed. Goodness knows why, but we did. If you were lucky enough to be on the bridge when one of the many and much-loved steam trains came through, you could stand there and be enveloped in the smoke. This accompanied by gales of laughter, naturally. Our clothes and hair must have reeked of smoke, but I never remember anybody ever actually complaining about it. And when I was very small, one of my greatest delights was to be taken out by my beloved grandfather when he was home from sea on his morning walks. Often we'd go over the railway bridge and along the path and then out to the road at the top. And along the way I would pick the dandelions which had already seeded and blow the seeds away. Grandad taught me to call them one o'clockers. Often we ended up on the quayside by the bend or the lifeboat shed and I would play about while he passed the time with old friends and shipmates before we went back, again often over the railway bridge. Later, a change in family circumstances found me at a school on Beckles Road, which might have been a different planet, but it was a lovely school and the railway line was there. On summer days we were allowed onto the playing field after we'd had our lunch. And it was a lovely field with plenty of wildflowers and grasses and the railway line, which was up on an embankment, ran along the bottom of the field. A train always came through at about 12.30 and we would gather to wave to the driver, who to our delight would always wave back to us. But all this didn't last, however, and to my further delight I was soon back again on home ground. Now, a trip to Yarmouth was a treat in those days, and Yarmouth itself had three railway stations. There was Southtown, where Pasteur Road is now, Vauxhall, of course, the only one which is still operational, and the more remote beach station, now a car and coach park. The line from the beach station ran to the north through the villages and up towards Cromer. The Great Midland and Northern Line, sometimes known as Muddle and Get Nowhere. And just at this point, I digress to say that um, our Margaret's grandfather, Mr Durrant, 
used to work at the new town Holt, along by Salisbury Road. And Margaret and her brother were allowed to turn the wheel to shut the gates to the traffic. That must have been very, very exciting. Apparently, so I was told, and it was many, many years ago, of course, when dozens of men from Winterton and Hemsby were on their way to join their boats at the start of the herring fishing season, that their train ran straight into the buffers at the beach station. Pandemonium reigned only briefly. Soon, they all picked themselves up. Handkerchiefs were produced and bleeding noses were staunched. Sore heads were rubbed and no doubt the air was blue. But they disembarked and away they went to the quay to join their boats, taking it all in their stride. How things change. But of course, life goes on. And came the day when I was at Galston Station, ready to go to college, complete with new suitcase. I was to go to Lowestoft and there pick up the mainline train which would take me up to the north. I was alone and very excited and felt extremely sophisticated when I was served with a delicious cup of coffee at my table. Somewhere north. Changing at Doncaster was a bit of an ordeal, but I managed and soon I was close to my destination as we travelled along by the banks of the Humber estuary in a way not so different from home. This journey, and also trips by train to London and back, was to be repeated many times and in all weathers. But even better was the journey home. After seeing the incredible beauty of Lincoln Cathedral, dominating everything around it, which cast a spell on me and which was visited several times, we eventually neared Thetford. The trees on Thetford Chase were a wonderful, welcome sight, no matter what the season, and it was then that I really knew that I was back in my beloved East Anglia. But of course Dr Beeching had been on the warpath, and sometime in the 1970s our local line was closed along with so many others. What were they thinking about? The tracks were pulled up and it all came to an end. Later, the relief road and also a footpath followed part of the old railway line, where the engine shed once stood, cars now whiz round a roundabout. But incredibly, yes, some of the old atmosphere still lingers. There can be something mysterious and magical about a railway. And I wonder if sometime, somebody may hear the faint rumbling sounds smell the smoke and hear the distant laughter of children. So thank you all for listening and please do stay safe. And all this talk about railways has left Dusty feeling nostalgic and she'd like to share a poem with you about a railway station which she wrote some years back. Hello everybody. Well Margaret's lovely story of the railways filled me with nostalgia, of course, because railways are important to all of us in our youth, particularly. And when I was younger, I have a, a poem that I've written here many years ago about Galston Railway Station. But I do recall when she was talking that beautiful spire of Lincoln Cathedral, which beckoned me back to my theological college so many times. However, we'll get a bit more local. And this is not particularly a funny poem, but it 
brings back a huge lot of memories to me. The deserted railway bridge at Galston-on-Sea. Softly falling snow and muted traffic overhead. Slogans on walls. The odd sleeper peeking through the whiteness. Memories are here where the trains used to run. So much has happened beneath this bridge. If it could speak, what stories would it tell? I rest a while and sheltering from the driving snow, recall my part in its history. A small part, but a part all the same. The many trips I made on this line, and the day my mother waved me off, the day I knew she was soon to die, just as surely as this station died a little after. What of the others who used it? Some travels have ended. Others make inroads on the journey of life. This line is used as a scrap heap. Oh, there's an old car, a bed, and a shoe. What's that written up there in black paint? The Beatles? Oh, there's a memorial if you like. John Lennon is dead. Long live the Beatles. And what does that say? Secret affair is a way of life. <laughs> For so many... That's just what it is. The punks must have written it. The affairs wouldn't dare. I'm writing our initials in the snow. I know they will fade as the bridge will go, but they must be part of the memories. Tomorrow the bulldozers will come. Here, soon, children will play and people will gather. New life will emerge from the station to the centre. And this centre will hold, undergirded and bridged by the tracks from the past. Dusty and Margaret there, and resisting the temptation to whistle Coronation Scott, let me hand you back to Margaret for the second part of the news. Man in hospital after Broad's Bridge scrapes off scalp. A man has been taken to hospital with serious scalp injuries after hitting his head on a Broads Bridge while his boat went under it. The 66-year-old was driving his vessel at 11.30am on Monday the 31st of August when the incident happened at Ludham Bridge. On approaching the bridge, he ducked his head, but lifted it too early. As a result, the skin on top of his scalp was scraped off by the bridge's underside leaving his wife to commandeer the boat as he fell to the floor. According to Hemsby's lifeboat crew, who administered emergency first aid after being paged by Humber Coast Guard, the man's wife did a fantastic job of staying calm given the circumstances. Daniel Hurd, lifeboat coxswain, said, The poor gentleman who was injured was knocked down and his wife did a fantastic job of pulling the boat over to the side, where she then called for help. The skin on his head had sort of come off in two parts. It looked extremely painful. We dressed the man's wounds before an ambulance transferred him to the James Paget Hospital for further treatment. He added, We respond to all kinds of incidents on the broads, but this is the first of its kind. Well, I hope he made a good recovery. Jeremy Corbyn dines in Seaside Restaurant on Norfolk Holiday. 
The owner of a new restaurant says he was thrilled after getting a visit from Jeremy Corbyn. The former leader of the Labour Party enjoyed a meal with his wife at Coast Pizza and Gyro on Gorston's Lower Prom. And for owner Kiki Kikis, it was a memorable occasion. He said, to serve Jeremy Corbyn in my first week of trading is amazing. Mr Corbyn's visit to the seaside spot comes after the former leader enjoyed a vegetable korma during a visit with his wife to the Taste of India Curry House in Holt. Having recently taken over the Coast Pizza restaurant and bar on Galston Seafront, Mr Kikis said, Some people are saying I'm mad for taking on a restaurant during lockdown and in the current climate. However, I've been a victim of the current climate and lost my job of eight years working in the oil and gas industry. I've always been involved in catering one way or another and always thought of doing something like this, but the opportunity never came up. Basically, Covid forced my decision. Mr Kikis said he's only been trading for seven days when he welcomed the former Labour Party leader. He said he and his wife shared a vegetarian pizza and loaded natural chilli fries. His wife loved them so much that she took a bag of our chilies home with her. I found Mr Corbyn and his wife very pleasant and enjoyed their company. And they loved our food too, which is a bonus. He mentioned how he loves the Norfolk Coastal Line and often frequents Norfolk, so we hope to see him again sometime. Mr Kikis said that although the restaurant had been closed since the start of the year, he hopes to breathe new life into the building. He said, my plan is to run it as it is, under the current name and style, until the close season, and then do a light refurbishment and make changes to the menu and rebrand. I have some amazing plans for this place, and I can't wait to show you all. However, since Mr Corbyn and his wife love their meals so much, as well as my other lovely customers, I'm thinking most of the current menu has to stay. Contact tracing only completed in half of Bannum poultry coronavirus cases. Contact tracing has only been completed in half the cases of Bannum poultry workers who tested positive for coronavirus, the county's public health director revealed on Tuesday and the company is being brought in to redo the NHS test and trace work, with the County Council keen to be permitted to tackle the problem locally, rather than relying on the national system. Norfolk County Council's Director of Public Health, Dr Louise Smith, confirmed the latest total of positive tests at the Attleboro factory had now risen to 104, out of 769 results returned. She said that contact tracing had been completed in 52% of cases where people had tested positive. We are working to get the data from the Department for Health and the NHS Test and Trace Service, she said. The remainder were either still in progress or uncontactable. To address this, because that's a relatively high proportion that had been uncontactable, we are bringing in a company to redo that contact tracing and have another go at reaching out to people. 
Dr Smith said that mobile testing units are already in place in Great Yarmouth, Norwich and Attleborough and another will be stationed in Thetford on Wednesday. But she said the County Council would be keen to take on responsibility for track and tracing. Dr Smith said, We've had good information back from the National Track and Trace System, but it's important to understand that we are not in charge of and running that system at the moment. We are very willing to become what's nationally announced as taking over the contact tracing and become a locally enhanced contract tracing local authority. When you are working with a very sudden spike in the number of cases and with a group or community for whom English is not their first language and who may not share the same trust or confidence in the confidentiality of a system, I think it's inevitable that the effectiveness or success rate will be low. Whilst we would very much like to see higher engagement with the testing NHS has undertaken, we do understand it's very hard getting through the door in a community like this. She said contact tracing was an art, not a science, and depended on human factors, such as people being willing to answer their phone and to engage. She said, we've always anticipated there would be elements of contact tracing in certain communities where contact tracing is particularly challenging. All the staff at the plant, plus their households, are being asked to self-isolate for 14 days if they have not tested positive and for 10 days if they have tested positive. Households of those who have tested positive need to isolate for 14 days. Staff who are self-isolating are being offered support, if they need it, from the Norfolk Assistance Scheme, including food and medical supplies and hardship fund payments. Dr Smith said, Colleagues from the Health and Safety Executive and Breckland District Council Environmental Health had visited the factory to offer advice and support to Bannon Poultry to plan for the resumption of all processes in a COVID secure way. She added, we are increasingly confident that this is a single outbreak of a virus that we are dealing with. We have good, strong evidence that working our way out from the people most clearly linked to the centre, to the staff in the cutting room, to the rest of the staff, that we are seeing numbers come down. We do not have evidence of this spilling out into the rest of the community and we are becoming increasingly confident of our evidence on that. I've received further analyses today that confirm that the background rate and pattern in Norfolk remains at the low levels they were at. County Councillor, Councillor Andrew Proctor said, everyone is playing their part in managing this outbreak and reducing the spread into the community and other businesses. I met today with MPs and government officials, setting out what has been done and what is being done to contain this outbreak. Bannum Poultry has made a request for financial support, which will be considered by officials and ministers. We have briefed the food industry about the situation and the additional precautions they should take to ensure the continued well-being of their staff. We are also briefing recruitment agencies. 
Brandon Lewis, MP for Great Yarmouth, where a number of the Bannon poultry workers are understood to live, and where the James Paget University Hospital is treating two cases, said, The outbreak in Bannon is extremely concerning and I've been monitoring the situation closely, including liaison with ministerial, parliamentary and local council colleagues. This has included regular contact with Carl Smith, leader of Great Yarmouth Borough Council, and with Norfolk County Council. I know that significant measures have been taken to help contain this outbreak, and I fully support the efforts to increase the capacity of our local response. It is essential that residents continue to follow the clear social distancing and self-isolation rules. COVID has not been defeated and as a collective, everyone has a part to play to make sure we are able to safely contain this and any future outbreak. Crash near Holiday Park leaves man with serious head injuries. Police have issued an appeal for information after a man was seriously injured when a car flipped onto its roof. The incident happened on Friday, August the 28th, just before 11pm in Butt Lane, Borough Castle, close to the Kingfisher Holiday Park. Police, fire crews and an air ambulance rapid response vehicle from Anglia 1 all rushed to the scene. The driver of a white Peugeot 106, a man in his 30s, sustained serious head injuries and was taken to James Paget University Hospital by land ambulance, a statement said. Officers are keen to hear from witnesses to the incident or anyone who might have seen the manner of driving of the vehicle. And this is a nice story. Well, it's got a nice ending anyway. It seemed to know we were helping. Men rescue Signet with fishing lines in throat. A normal morning on the broads was interrupted when a pair of men rescued a signet which had 18 inches of fishing line lodged in its throat. The drama began on 10am on Thursday August 27th when Simon Crutchley, local wildlife enthusiast, was at the fishing platform on Rollsby Broad where he usually feeds the young swans. I fed them since they were small feathery fluff balls floating on the broad, the 50-year-old man said. One of the six signets, however, had a large rubber fishing bait securely jammed in its beak. It was not a pretty sight. His brothers and sisters pecked inquisitively at it, trying to understand what it was. And we watched from the platform in despair at the distressed signets trying to gently tug the plastic fish to no avail. Mr Crutchley said. The rescue mission began. A fisherman and his son using a keep net to land the young signet onto the platform and Mr Crutchley holding the bird down and straightening its neck. It never struggled. It seemed to know we were helping it out, he said. The men drew the line out of the signet's throat and beak and finally 18 inches of string as well as the bait and the weight lay on the platform. They then lowered the signet back into the broads with its siblings. It was looking no worse for wear and it swam off gracefully, 
full of fluffy, feathery down blowing in the wind, Mr Crutchley said. Ah. <laughs> the next morning he returned to the scene of the drama to see if all six signets appeared, and they did. It was a beautiful moment to see them all together and hungry for their breakfast, and knowing that without our interference one of these beautiful birds would not be there that day, Mr Crutchley said. He added, I just hope that from now on the irresponsible fisherman who was responsible for this atrocity will now clean up their discarded lures, lines and weights from their fishing areas. Well, what a lovely story. Well, so much for the current news. I'm now taking you back to June 1961 as I meander through the Mercury. And here are some of the headlines. And the first one is... Modern pool opens tomorrow. Alterations costing nearly £78,000. Tomorrow we'll see the opening of the modernised bathing pool on Marine Parade at Yarmouth. Alterations costing nearly £78,000 have made this seafront attraction into one of the most modern pools in the country, with a new cafeteria, some terraces and more seating for spectators. The changing accommodation for swimmers has been greatly improved and modernisations have also been made to the aqua show performers dressing rooms beneath the southern terraces. Built in 1922, this pool is now equal in design to a contemporary structure with its mosaic patterning, pastel colours in the changing rooms and a new diving stage. And I have to comment here, for all the thousands they spent, they never quite got round to improving the damp, smelly boards on the floors of the changing rooms, as I remember very well. And another great event, this time the opening of a new supermarket on Regent Road called Fine Fair. Some of the bargains advertised were Scotch top side of beef at four and fourpence a pound, minced beef at two and sixpence a pound, a pack of two Andrex toilet rolls, one and ninepence. Oh, gosh, Panyan pickle. Who remembers Panyan pickle? And that would have cost you one and sixpence per jar. And tins of peas were available at nine pence per tin. And also on prices, Palmer's had a trouser fortnight. Gosh, the mind boggles. On offer were all wool cavalry twill trousers at £5.10 shillings and lightweight trousers at five guineas per pair. Now if you wanted entertainment, apart from the trouser fortnight, showing at the Regal Cinema was Howard Keel and Jane Powell in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and South Pacific at the Royal Aquarium. On now to something more serious. The article was captioned, Mr A. Fell's Common Market Questions. In a Commons debate, an MP was asked by Mr Anthony Fell, MP for Great Yarmouth, for his opinion on whether this country should join the common market or not. Mr Christopher Soames, the Minister of Agriculture, said it was a matter of very broad political and economic issue, whether or not it would be right for the country and its joining would not be decided purely on the grounds of agriculture. Well, we all know why that ended 60 years later. How incredible. 
And back to entertainment again. This headline was Bingo Games Deplored by Yarmouth Curate. The hold that bingo and other gambling has over many people as an expression of disease. This was one of the criticisms in a sermon given from a pulpit less than half a mile away from where a number of bingo games were probably in progress on a Sunday evening. The priest in charge of St John's was giving his views on the increasingly provocative subject of bingo. He said that when people spent £100, £50 or five shillings according to their means, it showed they had no idea and no conscience that there was in the world today a war on want that the church and many organisations were fighting for children to be fed. There is a much better use for your money than playing bingo, he added. Now it seemed that anyone who wasn't losing their shirt on a bingo card was still hell-bent on pleasure. And this headline was, they jived to read them and back. As soon as the Golden Galleon left her moorings on Thursday evening with nearly 200 people on board, the jiving began and continued for the next two and a half hours. Braden Water and the marshes hardly seemed the place to find Cliff Richard's voice echoing across the banks. Youngsters from Galston Baptist Youth Group and others from Heatherset, Sproston and Norwich spent the evening viewing the scenery of such charming structures as the old swing bridge or the corporation rubbish tip. Oh Lord! There were masses of swirling skirts and winkle pickers everywhere on board. To end with, an article I hope won't give you nightmares. Ring his neck, they shouted at the Marina Open Air Theatre on the Marine Parade in Yarmouth. Faces showing anything from enjoyment and sadism to distaste and detachment when the first bouts of professional wrestling opened at the Marina Open Air Theatre on Wednesday. Only a few of the 3,000 seats were empty, and true to television form, over half those present were women. From the moment the first Adonis-like couples climbed into the ring, flexed their muscles and weighed into each other, the sportsman's version of the backseat driver made themselves heard. The advice given was as varied as its givers. A timid-looking lady with glasses and a nervous habit of twisting her hands together shouted, pull the hairs off his legs, when her favourite found himself in a helpless position. No, it wasn't me, I promise. Good manners from the convent school forbade me to do things like that, and I was too busy in the swimming pool. And that was what made the headlines in the Great Yarmouth Mercury of June 1961. And to calm ourselves down, we were listening to Billy Fury singing Halfway to Paradise, Hello Mary Lou by Ricky Nelson, Running Scared by Roy Orbison and Rubber Ball by Marty Wilde. Oh, the halcyon days of my youth. Bye.
Ricky Nelson with Hello Mary Lou from 1961. Okay, Dusty is back with us and I should explain that um, Margaret the News takes the Grapevine Portable Recorder around to Dusty's sitting room to record the monthly contributions from the ladies, which will go some way to explaining the ribald laughter you may hear during the next few minutes. Here we are again, everybody. It's yours truly. And yesterday we um, we had a meeting with our, our chaplaincy team and um, of course meetings always go on a bit, don't they? But it was very friendly and very ecumenical. I suppose you might have called it a, a murmuring of ministers. And uh, we were doing sort of a bit of leg pulling about various um, denominations and so on. And it reminded me of a couple of stories which um, I, I'd like to just share with you. And... Uh, this, this is, it was all good in good humour, but it did remind me of this. This first one is um, about a dog. Patrick's dog had died. They had been together for many years, and Patrick had loved him like a son. Now he felt the only comfort that he could get would be to see that the dog had a burial ceremony as elaborate and as solemn as a human being would get. He was not a churchgoer, but there was a Baptist church on his street, and it was there that he applied. The Baptist minister heard him out politely, uh, but could offer no hope. He said, um, I am sorry, but it would be blasphemous to bestow upon a dog, lacking a soul, the solemn ritual that we offer to a human being. Mm. This, however, may not be the view that all men take. There is a Jewish synagogue just around the corner. Their attitude may be different. Rabbi Cohen listened and shook his head. Oh, I appreciate the tenderness of your feeling and sympathise with you in your sorrow. A dog can be a wonderful companion. Still, it cannot be done, I'm afraid. But there is a Catholic church just around the corner from here and perhaps they can help you. The priest listened. It was even more discouraging. I'm sure now you must understand, he said, that to avoid many people these days keep dogs as pets I'm afraid that I couldn't lend you the church to such a ceremony. By now poor Patrick was in despair. He said, well father if it can't be, it can't be. But it grieves me. Why to show you how much this means to me I was prepared to donate £10,000 to any house of worship that would have taken care of my little dog for me. And as he rose to go, the priest lifted a hand and said, just a minute, one moment, my son. Perhaps I was a little hasty. Now, did I not understand all the facts properly? Perhaps I should have thought. Did I understand you to say that a dog was a Catholic? <laughs> 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 
like that story. <laughs> and then there's another little one which I, I'd like to share with you as well about um, this is all in good humour, you know, we're not getting at anybody. But a priest was driving down the road from Norwich to London and he gets stopped for speeding on the Wyndham bypass. The traffic cop smells alcohol on the priest's breath and then sees an empty wine bottle on the floor of the car. And he says, Sir, have you been drinking? Ah, sure, just water, says the priest. And the policeman says, And then why did I smell wine? And the priest looked at the bottle and he says, Ah, to be sure, it is another miracle. <laughs> pier after that and I was <laughs> just to cool down and I was looking at the sea and thinking what wonderful calm beautiful sight it was and then I remembered 1953 was very different so many days are different on that someone once said to me um, when I was walking along the pier with my friend I said isn't it a beautiful day isn't it a beautiful day doesn't it look absolutely gorgeous and this man said well, I don't know. He says, always the same. And I thought, how can you possibly say that? And then I read, I went home and read the paper, and there was a review in, 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 in the paper about a book that's just been written um, about the um, 53 floods. And I thought, just share this <clears throat> with you to remind us that we can never, ever argue with nature. However lovely and quiet she looks, she can get really angry when she wants to. And this just reminded me, so i just share this book review with you and it's it's going to be a good book I think. Um, in 2020 there would be colour-coded weather warning from the Met Office. A yellow one would have turned to red and the people would have moved away from the east coast. But this was a very different time. This was January 31st 1953, a Saturday night when the sea changed lives and took others. Winds turned the angry North Sea into a raging torrent. Defences were swept aside as the water moved inland, wiping out whole families, destroying homes and buildings. Life for the survivors would never be the same again. The sea swept into Kings Lynn at 6.30, reached the Hunstanton 30 minutes later, and then powered toward Great Yarmouth, causing havoc on the way. 100 people died in Norfolk alone. Consider this. Soon after the 7.25pm train left Hunstanton for Kings Lynn, it was halted at the sea as the sea raced across the line. Minutes later, a complete bungalow was swept into the train. So many tragic stories unfolded later, such as the one in Salt House, where in one house the water burst through the front door with such force that it broke a woman's leg. Her husband carried her to the kitchen table but when the next wave smashed through the house, it swept her away to her death. Every coastal communion, uh, community was under siege as the storm travelled southwards down the curve of East Anglia. Lives were lost at Southwold. The Orwell burst its banks by Felixstowe and 39 people died as the water flooded as a state of flimsy prefabs. Harridge was completely cut off. And those nowhere, and those nowhere escaped. Jaywick Sands, Foulness, South End and Canary Island on the rim of East Anglia, where the entire population of 11,500 people lost their homes 
and 58 people their lives. Many heroes emerged, thinking nothing of risking their own life to save others up and down the coast. The emergency services and others gave all that they had. At Hamstanton, one of them was the late Reese Lemming, an American airman who couldn't swim, but that didn't stop him saving 27 people from drowning that dreadful night. For hours he waded backwards and forwards, plucking the people from the water until he collapsed. He was reported as saying later, Oh, shucks, there wasn't much. The floods struck the UK, the Netherlands and Belgium. Around 2,550 lives were lost and communities, animals and buildings were all swept away. And this book on the floods has been written by a lady called Zoe Somerville. So it might be worth having a look at if you can get somebody maybe to help you to read it to you as well. It's lovely if it puts on tape and then you can listen to it and it helps quite a lot. But accompanied by that, um, that, that article, there are so many photos in here in the, in the um, Eastern Daily Press, which I just share with you. There was fences are turned into makeshift boats in Galston. People flee with belongings in Snettisham and a scene of destruction, the 53 floods at Sea Pauling. And then there's a picture here of the rescue mission that began in Cobham and they're all in their little boats going up and down the streets. And I do believe there was a house in Cobham where the lady returned and found a fish floating about in her saucepan on the stove. <laughs> It's always has a lighter side, this kind of thing, doesn't it? Always has a lighter side. So I thought I'd just share with you, as Julie's been talking about her poetry and so on, and I, I was a bit, um, share with you a poem that I wrote, looking at our river one day, when I was working at the museum many years ago on the, on the quay, South Quay. I was standing there on a really wild night, and I was looking out of the window, and I wrote this, By the year in winter. Snow-clad, black bat night sky, cold sleet, stabbing white darts, parrying wiper blades of homeward cars. Icy blasts chill the rose, scattering sacks like yellow sweet papers. Stately houses, sandbagged and boarded, mount lonely vigil against the elements. In the sheds across the water, tip-up trucks become dinky toys with fairy lights, Search out their loads, hurrying, scurrying, to and from snow-capped mountains of lime and wheat. The noise of the woodyard is lost in the rush and tumble of the water. The wind-lash river brims over with excitement, leaping and cavorting towards its hungry mouth. Fishing boats tug at their moorings, dancing like rubber ducks at bath time, while the lifeboat waits to dice with death and the liberty moon rise high on a sea of dappled gold. Lovely memories, but really fierce sometimes. We have to remember that you cannot argue with nature, don't we? Many thanks to Dusty. Last part of today's news now, here's Margaret. How COVID-19 has affected seafront attractions. In a normal year, the prospect of queues outside shops and attractions would have traders rubbing their hands with glee. But 2020 has not been a normal year. At Joyland, Michael Cole, 
While happy to see people standing in line outside his famous 71-year-old attraction, he's frustrated he can't always let them all in. Some people are happy to stand in a queue for 20 minutes. Others just give up and go, he said. While limits in capacity mean the amusement park is as safe as it can be, it also means there's less money in the pot for investment as he tries to give loyal staff the hours he can. Meanwhile, a one-way system means an entrance from the beachside and Britannia Pier are closed off, creating a dead end at what is usually one of the busiest areas. It means trade at the amusement arcade is down 75% and hardly worth opening. The difficulty we have is that we are operating on limited numbers because of capacity. We are very good value and we really need a high volume of people to come in, so we are down on what we normally trade as. Once we hit capacity, it could be 20 minutes, but it is better than being closed. It has not been a complete disaster or a roaring success. We're making the best of a bad job. To compensate for the weeks lost at the beginning of the year, he is planning some November weekend openings, weather permitting. On this sunny September day, Great Yarmouth's Golden Mile is glinting in a warm autumn glow and it's not all doom and gloom. The cafes are busy with people enjoying continental style outdoor seating, ushered in during the pandemic, and it seems plenty of people want to play crazy golf. A stone's throw from Joyland, the Landor drivers are among those squeezing the last drops of custom from this year's season. Ronnie Billiard is one of the old guard, having driven trippers up and down Marine Parade for some 50 years and one of a dwindling number on the seafront. Like many of the seafront traders, he only has a small window to make his money and's trying to make up for lost time. He says he didn't get started until the 6th of July and that since the season has been a success, helped by the retirement of others on the rank. I haven't seen so many people on the seafront for years, he said, adding, next year will be okay as well. It will be a while before people start going abroad again. Further along, seafront trader Herbert Gray is the third generation serving holiday makers in Yarmouth, tracing his proud pedigree to the days when they rented bathing booths on the sands. When they reopened in June, they were losing money, he said, but the main six-week season had been a success. He felt the seafront had been busier than previous years, helping his string of businesses, including the slush shack. Oh gosh, try saying that when you've had a sherry or two. The slush sack. That's better. <laughs> Compared to how the summer started, he said they were grateful to get out of trouble with not many days lost to bad weather. However, it meant trying to make nearly all their income in seven weeks, so September needed to deliver. Stephen Phillips at Barker's, a shop brimming with seaside gifts and trinkets like personalised drinks bottles and sunglasses, said there had been plenty of people out and about willing to spend money. The shop is one of several branches in the town which have been trading since 1973. 
Although the season had been slow to start, things had picked up and overall he was happy, he said. At Kilbrannan Guesthouse, there had been much rejigging of bookings and also a surge in door knockers, many of whom were out of luck. Gary Smith said, most of the new customers we have picked up were originally booked to go abroad somewhere and were forced to holiday in the UK. I have to say, most of these people were delighted by what was on offer in this area and planned to return. On the downside, having missed out on Easter and a raft of festivals, there will be many that have lost revenue overall and look to open for longer to recoup. The opportunities for social distancing along the prom and on the beaches have proved a draw, but had an impact on rubbish. Penny Carpenter, Chairman of the Environment Committee at the Borough Council, said the amount of waste being collected was up to 30% more and that more bins had been put on the seafront to cope. Hotel access holiday cabin plans are opposition from neighbours. A coastal hotel is withdrawing plans to install seven cabins near a residential retirement complex after opposition from neighbours. The Cliff Hotel in Galston submitted plans to Great Yarmouth Borough Council on July the 3rd to build cabins into the cliffside. But after opposition from the residents of, of the over 55s housing estate nearby, Grenfell Court, the hotel said it will not build the proposed lodges. In a Facebook post on Thursday, the hotel said, after consideration following recent events, the hotel has made the decision not to go against what our local community would like and will not build the proposed lodges. Instead, we will be using the area marked out for these as a garden terrace, for which planning had already been granted. Explaining the decision, the hotel said, our original thoughts behind the lodges were to move away from having too many people outside drinking, dining and listening to live music and to add more accommodation on the hotel whilst creating less noise. One of the main concerns from our neighbours was that these lodges would impact their view that they have enjoyed since the removal of the trees that stood tall on our plot which were removed by us. The lodges would not have impacted the residents of Grenfell Court's view, as the top of them would have been in line with the bottom of theirs. Residents of Grenfell Court, however, said the new proposal for a garden terrace would be even worse than the cabins. Odette Martin, whose house overlooks Gorston Cliffs, said, this isn't any better, it isn't a compromise. We are against any development which will sit so close to our back gardens. The hotel's actions are ruining the mental health of people who live in this association, many of whom are disabled and housebound. To the residents of the court, this Facebook post is a threat. It feels like they're saying, well, you wouldn't let us have what we wanted, so we're going to make things even harder for you. Her husband, Mike, said, if they think this will make the residents reconsider the cabins, we won't. We will stand our ground. The Cliff Hotel was approached but refused to comment. 
Village Nursery celebrates lockdown move to former Sure Start site. Some of the very youngest residents of a growing village can benefit from a new relocation and partnership move between a school and a nursery. Playdays has been in Caister for some 50 years, operating from a single room with limited capacity on numbers and ages. Now it is welcoming children as young as one at its new site at Caister Infant School. It will run alongside the school's existing nursery. It means the facility is able to widen the age range for the first time and add more children to the role, just as house builders plan hundreds more homes. The partnership fulfills a long-held ambition for both Playdays owner Angie Ward and the school's executive head teacher Jonathan Rice to take younger children. This is a very exciting opportunity to expand our provision and offer childcare to the under twos, which is something I've wanted to do for many years, said Liz Ward. This has been possible because the school and play days share a vision of how we want provision to be for parents in Caister. Mr Rice said, we think parents will appreciate having a range of preschool options on the school site. They can choose between play days and our school nursery and the offer of places for one-year-olds is an exciting step forward. Playdays was previously based at Caister Community Centre on Bridge Road and moved during lockdown. It has been open for key worker children and enjoying its extra space since April. Hand washing and cleaning are part of the new COVID safe routines with some activities like sand and dressing up off limits. Ms Ward, who has worked at Playdays for 21 years and has been in charge for 15, said the former Sure Start building, one of many closed under budget cuts, was ideal for the nursery. She said that while some providers had struggled during the pandemic, Playdays had grown, although there were still spaces at its new home. To have two competing providers on the same site was unusual, she said, although ultimately parents would benefit and the arrangement was helping both the school and the nursery to achieve their vision. Places are available at both Playdays and the Caister Infant School's nursery. Parents queue for up to three hours outside shops for school uniform. As schools across Norfolk prepare to reopen, parents have been queuing for hours for last minute pieces of school uniform. At Harrison's in Great Yarmouth, Parents said they had no choice but to stick it out in order to get hold of blazers, ties and jumpers ahead of the new term. Some said they had no idea if the items they needed were in stock and whether there would be sanctions for their children if they arrived in class without all the regulation gear. The last week of the summer break is always a busy time for outfitters, but this year the rush has been added to by COVID-19 restrictions on how many people can be in a store at any one time. Sisters Lisa Vacal and Stacey Mills had already waited for an hour on Thursday, September the 3rd. Between them, they had children at Great Yarmouth Primary Academy and Charter Academy who had outgrown their uniforms. 
Both said they were frustrated at having to buy pieces emblazoned with the regulation logo rather than standard items they could buy anywhere more cheaply. Jessica Burke, who was waiting with her seven-year-old son, Roddy Adams, said she had no choice but to wait. It has to be today, she said. The queue is a bit much. I did not expect it to be this long. Another woman waiting in the collections queue with her two children aged three and nine said it was the fourth time in a week she'd been to the shop on Southtown Road, having turned around several times after being put off by the wait. She hailed the patience of everyone in the queue who were all standing in their bubbles at a social distance. However, she questioned the wisdom of having one single shop responsible for supplying uniforms for so many schools. It must be absolute hell in there, she said. Meanwhile, Denise Hack said she waited in a very long queue for three hours on Wednesday just to buy a uniform which can only be brought from this shop. She said, apparently many parents have been queuing like this for the last few weeks. A member of staff said they had been very busy all week. Well, that's all the news for me for this week. And I'd like to finish with the phrase that Trevor, the presenter on my regular team, always says, keep a troshin, whatever that might mean. Anyway, goodbye. Take care until we meet again. Thank you for listening. That's it for the first autumn edition of Grapevine. And so, once again, we have to give you the usual information. Grapevine, volume 40, number 36, is copyright 2020 of the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. The content, in the main, is adapted from the publications of Archant Limited and is used with their consent. However, the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association accept responsibility for editorial decisions made for this recording. Aileen will be your newsreader next week and we hope that you will listen in once again. So, from the Margarets, Judith, Dusty and myself, all hoping that you have a great week and keep well and safe, it's bye for now. Bye.